America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation where everyone appears to be transfixed by the ongoing funeral services for Tyree Nichols. And those services include some words from the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris was there, Al Sharpton, a featured speaker, and uh, giving a memorable and fiery speech, which is incredibly focused on the travesty of five black cops being involved uh, with a potential murder. I say potential murder because they're charged with second-degree murder. They haven't been convicted uh, yet. There's also an example of the other side of policing, heroic policing, life-saving policing, courageous policing, not in Memphis. Uh, actually, it's in Omaha, Nebraska. We will get to that story. We'll also be speaking to nationally syndicated columnist E.J. Dion about his plan and his push to make voting mandatory. Basically, why shouldn't we be like Australia, where 98% of the people vote? They vote because they get in trouble and you pay some money if uh, you don't vote. So is that a good plan for the United States, uh, to get people less focused on building up turnout? We'll talk to EJ about that. We'll also speak to a scholar from the American Enterprise Institute about the dual promise of the American dream and why it is worth defending. There's also uh, the second official announcement being announced. The announcement hasn't been made yet, but it's now scheduled for February 15th for the second uh, Republican running for president of the United States uh, to join Donald Trump in this race. And unlike John Bolton, who hasn't actually done an official announcement, he just mentioned that he is planning to run, this is somebody with campaign funds who has raised several million dollars already and uh, could be a serious contender. And no, it is not Ron DeSantis, not yet at least. 1-800-955-1776 uh, is the phone number. The FBI just uh, searched uh, another Joe Biden residence, his beach house in Rehoboth Beach, uh, Delaware. And uh, what they find, uh, we will tell you about that as well coming up on the Medved Show. Uh, okay, first off, the, uh, the, the one thing, and maybe to start with some good news and something that is a little bit more positive than all the horror that is being recalled with uh, Tyree uh, Nichols being memorialized. There was an incident today that could have been a terrible incident. I mean, one of those other mass shootings that is pointless. We still have no idea because it just happened uh, who the uh, white individual was. And yes, he was white in Omaha, Nebraska, went into a, uh, a store at uh, the a Target store and he... Uh, began firing at an AR-15-style rifle, and 
uh, police responded immediately, uh, and the officers went in. Well, here is the way a police spokesperson in Omaha described what happened. Uh, listen, clip one. At 11.59, calls started coming into our 911 center about an active shooter within Target, uh, 178th and Center. That initiated a heavy local, federal, and state response. You saw all the police officers here. Everybody in, their, in the city responded to this call if they were able to. The first arriving officers went into the building, confronted the suspect, and shot him dead. Uh, the suspect is a white male. I'm going to estimate that he's in his 30s. He had a AR-15 rifle with him and plenty of ammunition. There's evidence to suggest with shell casings that he entered the target and was firing rounds. It's unknown at this time if he was firing at anybody. Firing at we did a search for any victims, customers, workers, because there were some people hiding in there. We could not find anybody that has been hurt. We did a second sweep just to really ensure it, and we're in the process of a third. At this point in time, we don't have any workers or customers or any civilians in this matter hurt other than the suspect who is dead by, the, by gunshot through Omaha police. We did receive, I know at this point, at least 29 911 calls for the active shooter response. Okay, uh, this is police work as it is supposed to be, and it, it's extraordinary. There's a, a shooter in, in there in Target. We'll find out more about him. But with all of the mass shootings that have been so bloody where people have taken lives, what this shows is the police responding immediately, responding fearlessly, and uh, doing a job. The suspect, they have now revealed, had 13 loaded magazines. So he had plenty of ammunition and could have taken plenty of lives, but apparently nobody injured. They also praised the police, the target employees, who recently underwent uh, active shooter training and used that training to assist in getting shoppers out of harm's way and making sure that people weren't available to this particular shooter. Uh, okay, Kamala Harris in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, she was not the featured speaker, that's Al Sharpton. And he gave some incredible lines and powerful lines. He said uh, attacking the, the police officers, the uh, six of them now, but five of them are black police officers. He attacked them in particular be for disgracing the, mem the memory of Martin Luther King, who died in Memphis, who was assassinated in Memphis. And uh, what, what Sharpton said, among other things, is you don't fight crime by becoming criminals yourself. That's not police, that's punks. And uh, that's Basically, I think the emotions of the audience is that, uh, yes, there are demands for reform. There's a uh, Washington Post editorial today calling for police reform. But hard to understand what reforms in particular would have blocked this horrible and senseless killing. Here is uh, what Vice President Harris said. She, she was recognized. She rose to her feet, hugged the mother of Tyree Nichols. And then she was invited up to the podium in an impromptu fashion and had this to say, 15A. Mothers around the world 
When their babies are born, pray to God. When they hold that child, that that body and that life will be safe for the rest of his life. Yet we have a mother and a father who mourn the life of a young man who should be here today. They have a grandson who now does not have a father. His brothers and sister will lose the love of growing old with their baby brother. And when we look at this situation, this is a family that lost their son and their brother through an act of violence at the hands and the feet of people who had been charged with keeping them safe. Uh, that's uh, Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. We'll play some more from her remarks today. We'll also be speaking to E.J. Dion about a, a new drive. And it's a big drive, significant drive in the state of Washington right now with the legislature in session to make voting mandatory. How would that work exactly? That and more coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. On the Michael Medved show, the uh, amazing thing is that virtually all of the cable networks are broadcasting uh, live, live streaming the funeral of Tyree Nichols. And uh, they, uh, Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, traveled down to the, to the site of the funeral and uh, she gave impassioned remarks, of course, on this sad occasion. And uh, part of the reason it is made so sad is because there was the opportunity for millions of Americans, it, possibly even a majority of Americans, to look at some of the video that was provided, and video not just from the body cameras of the officers and what's amazing is there there's even at least two officers where they they turned on their body cameras they did what they were supposed to do and to to then when you know you are going being photographed and there's every chance that you're going to be photographed how you could proceed with the astonishing brutality that uh those officers showed it's appalling. And uh, here is the conclusion uh, of um, Vice President Harris and her quick and, and seemingly impromptu but impassioned words at the funeral for Tyree Nichols. Uh, clip uh, 15B. And when I think about the courage and the strength of this family, I think it demands that we speak truth. And with this, I will say... This violent act was not in pursuit of public safety. It was not in the interest of keeping the public safe because one must ask, was not it in the interest of keeping the public safe that Tyree Nichols would be with us here today? 
Was he not also entitled to the right to be safe? So when we talk about public safety, let us understand what it means in its truest form. Tyree Nichols should have been safe. So I'll just close by saying this. I was, as a senator, as a United States senator, a co-author of the original George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And as Vice President of the United States, we demand that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Joe Biden will sign it. And we should not delay and we will not be denied. It is non-negotiable. Okay, this whole idea of non-negotiable, is this a new thing from the White House? This is the day that uh, President Biden is supposed to be meeting with Speaker McCarthy to try to work something out so the economy doesn't get wrecked uh, with the um, raising the debt ceiling so that uh, we're, we're not going to have a default of the United States, which will be damaging in, in a profound way. It will be also very damaging to Republican prospects. We'll be talking about that. The uh, lead editorial from the Washington Post editorial board that they all signed says what uh, Kamala Harris is saying is Congress can honor Tyree Nichols with bipartisan police reform. They're talking about going back and uh, having the Senate pass the the uh, George Floyd uh, Police Reform Act. It was already passed by the House. Now the Senate would have to sign it. They say in their editorial in the Washington Post, uh, while there's no perfect solution to stop police brutality, the federal government could take several steps to deter misconduct and hold officers accountable without undercutting the ability of law enforcement to get bad guys off the street. The officers charged with killing Mr. Nichols did not put him in a chokehold, but the move is still unnecessary and should be banned as a tool for subduing suspects. And then they talk about other aspects of the George Floyd bill. The point is, when you talk about accountability, these officers were held immediately accountable. And the justice system worked, and it, it worked efficiently, and it's still working. Uh, they are charged with second-degree murder. They've all been fired, and, uh, and fired quickly, and, and it seems to me appropriately. So the, uh, the, the point that um, they, in their editorial in favor of the George Floyd Police Reform Act... Uh, ben Crump, an attorney for the Nichols family who also represented uh, Floyd's family, is uh, pushing to enact the George Floyd Act. Shame on us if we don't, he says. We, too, this is the Washington Post editorial board, would love to see broad federal legislation that modifies the qualified immunity doctrine, which was largely invented by the Supreme Court and often blocks lawsuits for fragrantly unconstitutional abuses. But this and other elements of the George Floyd Act are unlikely to pass in the Republican-controlled House. Well, yeah, that's true. So then they make the point that they should get together with Tim Scott. Uh, Tim Scott, who has been the lead GOP negotiator on police reform, delivered an embittered floor speech on Monday night 
that blame Democrats for failing to scale back their ambitions and accept incremental policing legislation that more members of his party would support. He called for more grants to fund training for officers on their duty to intervene and uh, increased funding for recruiting new officers. We need the best wearing the badge, Mr. Scott said. We should have simple legislation that we can agree upon. Democrats would rightly press for more than that, but they should still treat this as an invitation to talk. That's right. No, Vice President Harris, it's not non-negotiable. When you have both sides who want basic police reform and both sides who um, are, are trying to do something in response to this horror, why would you take the position that it's non-negotiable? Fortunately, in addition to the Washington Post reaction, there's a, an op-ed today by the great Jason Riley, uh, in my opinion, certainly one of the most important black conservatives in America. And he points out that fatal encounters between police officers and civilians, including black civilians, are exceedingly rare in America. Even though annual contacts between police and the public number more than 60 million, in recent years, these incidents have gained more attention because of social media. But that doesn't mean they're happening more often. In a 2021 report published by the Manhattan Institute, the uh, political scientist Eric Kaufman noted that police killings of African Americans declined by 60 to 80 percent from the late 1960s to the early 2000s and have remained at this level ever since. A study published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Surgery in 2018 looked at more than a million service calls to police departments in Arizona, Louisiana, and North Carolina and found that officers used physical force in the course of arrests less than 1% of the time. There are other statistics that show you just how much progress has been made in this regard. And what about progress in voting participation? Uh, we'll talk about that with E.J. Dion coming up. And on the Michael Medved Show, there has been a, a great deal of concern particularly on the part of the Democratic Party, but it's actually a national concern. And uh, I do think that most Americans would like to see more people vote. The uh, polit Our politics can only be improved by getting greater participation and a more informed electorate and more people who actually bother to take a position on who should be leading the country. The... Uh, the last um, a major race for which we have a exact data came in uh, 2016 when we had a presidential race. Remember, very close race between Hillary Clinton and Donald J. Trump. And 60.1% uh, of Americans voted, eligible Americans, in that presidential race. It was a high turnout by American standards. But that still means that you have more people who are not voting than uh, voted for either Clinton or Trump. And that compares to uh, in Australia, 
where they have mandatory voting. Uh, all of the Australians uh, need to show up, need to participate. They can vote for none of the above if they want, but uh, they have to vote. And they got 91.9%, 92% who are voting in Australia. There's been discussion about this in a number of states. In the Washington legislature, there are proposals afoot to try to make uh, voting mandatory here in the state of Washington or what? Uh, in Australia, I believe, they uh, they actually have a fine that you are asked to pay. And it's not a crushing fine. I mean, it's not... Uh, thousands of dollars or even hundreds, but it's enough so that you feel it. And uh, they also treat uh, Election Day as a holiday. And given the fact that there are such a high percentage of Americans now, and in the state of Washington, it's virtually universal, who vote by mail, uh, it, it's hard to say that this would be oppressive to people. If you required voting and required people to go ahead and put uh, 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 put their ballots in the mail, the uh, the book by E.J. Dion that he wrote with Miles Rappaport is called "100 Percent Democracy: The Case for Universal Voting," and it came out last year. That's uh, uh, particularly appropriate because there wasn't a particularly big turnout for the elections of 2022. That may have to do with the fact that, uh, frankly, there weren't a lot of uh, inspiring or even particularly motivating candidates who were prominent on the ballot. But uh, uh, E.J., I, I, welcome to E.J. Dion. Uh, I was just mentioning your book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting Hardcover. I, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I, I it came out in March of last year. But uh, right now, this is a, a hot property because in the state of Washington, where we already have mail-in ballots for everybody, uh, there is talk in the legislative session of, of trying to go for that 100% participation. What What would be the key change... EJ, that you believe could lead to 100% democracy? Well, first of all, uh, it's great to be with you, uh, and it's very good to have you on. And could I sort of do one thing first for your audience on this, which I think might interest them in particular? Those, those of them who know me know that I am a, you're a liberal friend who loves to talk politics with you. And I think one of the important sort of things about this idea, and idea, something that should be shoved aside, is that this idea is designed as a partisan trick to rig elections uh, for uh, Democrats. Uh, my friend Miles and I are unabashed progressives in our views, but we make very clear in the book that the purpose of this is to have as close to 100 percent democracy as we can get, and that Yes, this idea, if you look at groups underrepresented in the electorate, uh, they certainly include young people who tend to be more progressive. 
to some degree, they uh, uh, the, the underrepresented include ethnic minorities. This would be a blow against voter suppression. But one of the big underrepresented groups in the electorate are white voters who didn't graduate from college, who are about a two-to-one Republican group. And so I just can't resist right at the beginning uh, wanting to make clear to, you know, there, may, there are probably some plenty of skeptical conservatives out in your audience about what this would lead to. One of the things it would not lead to is stacking the electorate in favor of the Democrats. In fact, when this idea was adopted in Australia uh, 100 years ago, um, it was conservatives who actually pushed for it uh, because they were worried that a rising labor movement would push their politics to the left. And the left went along with it. The Labor Party in Australia, the center-left party, went along with it because they thought it would be civically good. And in Australia, you have these very, very high turnouts. And so I think the idea is, can we stop arguing about uh, you know, uh, election fraud and voter suppression, and do you have this or that kind of voting? And let's just say that voting is a right, and the best way to underscore that right is to declare it a duty, just as we declare a jury duty. Uh, literally in its name, a duty. We all have an obligation to answer that summons, and I think we all have an obligation to answer the summons to democracy. Okay, what uh, uh, is the key element that allows this Australian system to work, where they get up to above 90% of the people to vote? They pay a fine if they don't vote, don't they? Yeah, they pay. It's very interesting the way it works in Australia. In their system, first of all, they make it very easy to register. Everybody's got to register, but everybody, but the government makes it very easy uh, to register. They also make it very easy uh, for people uh, to vote. They hold elections on Saturdays. I wouldn't necessarily support that. That raises religious issues for some people, some groups, especially uh, Jews, although I do think Election Day should be a holiday. I really appreciate uh, Washington State's uh, law sending everybody a ballot, which helps you get the very high turnout uh, you already have. Uh, but what they've done with that, what, what compulsory voting has done, and I don't like to use compulsory voting because everybody is free to cast a blank ballot. Uh, you could write in Michael Medved. You could draw you know, pictures on the ballot. You can do whatever you want with the ballot. You just have to participate. <laughs> But what it's done over 100 years is create a civic culture um, in uh, Australia where everybody knows when the election day is coming and everyone knows that they're expected to vote. And most people who don't vote don't actually have to pay the fine. If you don't vote in Australia, you get a little notice, you get a second one, you get a third one. Um, if you don't respond, you're fined $15. Um, it's not a you know, it's not a criminal penalty. We we certainly, were, uh, in our book, we very explicitly say this should never be a, a criminal penalty. But if you give any sort of excuse for not voting, like I was sick that day, uh, they waive the fine. So the result is only about 13 percent of the people who don't vote actually end up paying a fine. And that's the point of all this. It's a nudge, not a shove. Um, and it's designed to declare that voting is a civic duty. We actually did some polling uh, for our book, and we haven't persuaded a majority yet by any means to endorse our idea. But uh, Republicans and Democrats equally, 61 percent of both groups, 
um, said that voting is both a right and a duty. And we think it is useful to underscore uh, that uh, in a democracy, voting rights have to be protected, but that we should treasure voting as a duty that we should carry out. A.J. Dion, the name of his book, 100% Democracy, the case for for universal uh, voting. It's uh, made available back in last year. We'll talk coming up about the debt ceiling crisis and what it means and how to resolve it. The Michael Medved Show, all across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. On the Michael Medved Show, uh, the uh, statistics in the state of Washington are fascinating. Jeremy just provided them. And uh, in Washington state, 90% of eligible voters are registered. Uh, That was the case ahead of the 2020 election. And uh, in the 2020 election, registered voter turnout topped 84% in that presidential year. Now... That's partially, I was just talking with D.J. Dion off the air, the uh, nationally syndicated columnist for uh, the Washington Post, and uh, his column is read all over the country uh, by people not just who share his progressive point of view, but, uh, but by thoughtful Americans of all stripes. In any event, the uh, Republicans now in Olympia, the state capital here, have described the idea of a of some kind of uh, fine it's actually a uh, participation tax or a non-participation tax having that uh, uh, fifteen dollars and it would be about that imposed on people that it should be un-american uh, the chief uh, sponsors of the bill in Olympia have won no Republicans yet to back their proposal uh, says State Senator Jeff Wilson, the ranking Republican on the Senate State Government and Elections Committee, said, uh, to me, this is an unconstitutional, un-American distraction. Uh, that panel will be the first to scrutinize the proposal. Wilson said he foresees legal trouble in compelling people to speak through their vote. Uh, E.J. Dion has written a, uh, a book called 100% Democracy, which is about the idea of uh, obligatory voting. It's uh, co-authored with Miles Rappaport. And they argue that universal participation in our elections should be a cornerstone of our system. What do you say to the idea that this is un-American, E.J.? Well, it's not on You know, if you go back through our history, there were state constitutions, including in my native state of Massachusetts, that authorized uh, compulsory voting. Uh, and so we have had these proposals for this around for a while. On the and you know we require people to serve on judy, juries. It was a great victory of the civil rights movement to pull, tear down the barriers, the racial discriminatory barriers to jury duty, uh, and that meant that black Americans, like white Americans, were being compelled to serve on juries. And we support the idea that everyone, in principle, is uh, you know has to report or you know, declare a willingness to serve on a jury, uh, because that is the way to guarantee 
Um, well, I, I, at least guarantees are always a bad guarantee is always a bad word, but it 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 is more likely to guarantee a fair trial um, if everyone is you know eligible uh, is required to serve on juries. So. Uh, if this is un-American, jury duty is un-American. On the constitutional idea, in our book, we have a whole chapter on this question. Uh, and we had a great group of lawyers working with us on this. Um, and while I would never predict what the Supreme Court, particularly the current Supreme Court, would do about anything, uh, if you look at the precedents, um, compelled speech would be unconstitutional. And this idea, it's very clear that no one would have to vote for any candidate. They simply have to cast a ballot. In our uh, model system, we would have a none of the above option on every race. To make very clear, no one is being compelled to speak. They are being compelled to participate. Uh, and and the, the Supreme Court law is very clear that people in the public interest can be asked to do certain civic things. Parents are required to educate their kids to age uh, 16, either um, you know, in school or through uh, you know, approved homeschooling programs in some states. Uh, so we don't think it's un-American. We think a civic duty is very American. Uh, and we think also, by the way, that this would probably, if it, if it changed the electorate, it would probably produce a somewhat less ideological electorate at both ends. Uh, because obviously we know people who are more ideological on the left and the right tend to vote more. Um, and I think it would also produce um, uh, campaigns that were at least a little bit less nasty, because you wouldn't – and I'm sorry that, that, that we didn't connect uh, at the time we were supposed to because of an, uh, a, an area code error. Um, but I think you mentioned this at the beginning of the show – um, that if uh, politicians know everybody is going to vote, or virtually everybody is going to vote, then they don't have an interest in running down the other candidate to suppress the other side's vote. You don't have enraged to engage to push up your own vote. <laughs> so we think this would improve the quality of campaigns. Uh, again, I, we don't we don't think this is a magic elixir. We're not selling. You know, we're not like those 19th century salesmen, but we do think it would make things better. And that's, uh, I think, what you uh, hope for in some kind of legislation. Okay, one of the things, and this takes us to another issue, is is right now we have seen in recent elections uh, how closely divided everything is. There's no party that is clearly a majority party. And you make this point in your column from uh, a week ago that uh, for years the Republican Party between Abraham Lincoln and, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt was the dominant party. It controlled Congress most of the time, controlled the presidency almost all the time in that period, except for Grover Cleveland and Woodrow Wilson. And uh, then the Democrats controlled from the time of Franklin Roosevelt until really the time of uh, President Reagan. And uh, there were 40 years where the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. Now, I, you seem to suggest that this indicates American politics is stuck and that it would be a good thing for uh, President Biden, in your opinion, and you say this is a supporter of President Biden, to help build the Democratic Party into a real majority party. 
How would the idea of uh, universal voting by law, how would uh, that help that idea of uh, getting the American electorate away from this idea of stuck, where everything is so closely divided? Well, two things I want to say. One is there's just a great political science term, which I think you know that uh, for a long period of time we had a sun party and a moon party, and the Republicans were this, you know, the one kind of reflecting off the other, and we did have that long period of Republican dominance followed by that long period of Democratic dominance. Our idea would not change that one way or the other. That's going to have to happen with people being persuaded. We do not propose this idea uh, in order to have a substantive effect on sort of the ideological or partisan um, result of an American election. We just we think that a democracy based on um, the participation of as close to all Americans as we could get would be a better democracy, a more stable democracy. We would at least stop contesting the mechanisms we use to elect a government. Um, to have one party become dominant uh, for a period of time will depend on how they govern. Um, now, I think but from my own political point of view, I think that Biden has had, even though his own approval rating is so-so at best, I think he's had a, a, a sort of tend, a positive effect on that in showing that, you know, when you give Democrats a majority, they can govern and do certain things that, in some cases, Republicans themselves uh, supported. I think it was really important that the infrastructure bill passed with Republican votes and that the Tech and Science Act, the new investments in technology, passed with Republican and Democratic votes. And well, we will, sort of we will see, obviously. The, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, Michael, we will see, obviously, when President Biden uh, stands for re-election, which it looks increasingly likely that he will. Do you share that conception, uh, E.J., that uh, that Biden is likely to announce his candidacy sometime after the State of the Union? You know, I have been um, in a minority that was pro that probably will be proven wrong. Um, I had felt that President Biden might decide to step down and say, I have accomplished what I set out to accomplish, which was to defeat uh, Trumpism and to, to kind of push us toward um, a somewhat less confrontational politics and toward getting certain things done in government, and that at his age he would uh, uh, step down. I am, I am more of the view that I was wrong about that and that he will run. And I think what you're seeing, what I've run into among a lot of Democrats... We're, we're just, just about out of time, and especially we have coming up uh, another official candidate uh, who will tell you in this greatest nation on God's green earth?